Let's bow our heads one more time, if you would. Ask the Lord to, to help us, help me here tonight. Lord, we love you. Once again, thank you for each person that's here this night. Lord, make your word real to our hearts. Thank you for your word, the precious word of God, Lord, that we can open it together here tonight. Make yourself real to us, Lord. Convict every heart, Lord. You see what we have need of. Lord, you see every situation. You see the very depths of our heart, the very depths of our mind, Lord, the very depths of our soul. You know what we have need of. Minister to every life here tonight in the precious, wonderful name of Jesus. Repentance. What is repentance? Now, if I ask you that and you're thinking about that, and you know what, there's going to be something that comes to your mind regarding to repent. We know in the Old Testament, the, the word repentance, and there's a little bit different connotation in the New, but the idea of, rep, uh, of repentance in the Old Testament was twofold. One part was to return. The other part was to feel sorrow, to repent, to return, to go back, and to feel sorrow. In the New Testament, we find that the word translated as repentance in the Greek is a word called metanoia. And it means after slash behind one's mind. Think about that one for a second. After one part of it slash the other part of it is behind one's mind. It's a compound word. These put, two put together. It's very, very interesting when you see what this means. If you combine these two words, it means after and different. Or you might say it this way, to think differently after. Or to put it even simpler, after thought. Now you're thinking to yourself, repentance? No, repentance is, I'm sorry for my sin, I'm turning from my sin, and, and I'm throwing all that away. But in its simplest form, that word, what Paul is dealing with, what the New Testament writers are dealing with regarding repentance is changing your thought. And now we're not, you know, changing your thought, after thought. I thought something before, but now I'm changing that former thought. I've got an afterthought. I'm switching. I'm changing. I see something differently. Something's been made new in my life, made real in my life, and I'm changing my thinking. Afterthought. A change of mind. A change of conduct. Because I've changed my mind, a change of my mind, a change of my heart, or a change of consciousness, a complete change, 180 degrees, I was thinking this way, now I'm thinking that way. Now let me give you a thought here, and I'm heading somewhere here tonight, and, and, and I want to encourage you, the point of where I'm going is to have a made-up mind, as never before, to, to say, I'm going on with, with God and I'm going to be effective for God. I want to do something for God. As I've gotten older, I mean, I, by some standards, I'm still a young man. I'm 58 years old. But I'm a whole, more than likely, I'm a whole lot closer to the end of my life, certainly, than to the beginning, you would think. I doubt I'm going to live 116 years here on, on this earth. That would be wonderful, but I kind of doubt it. So I'm getting much closer to the end. Man, my... my uh, my way of thinking regarding what matters in life, my life has always been about the Lord, but I so understand it now. I so see how the time must be redeemed. You know, with what time we have left, I, I, the, other, the other day I was looking at a beautiful sunset, and I watched that sun go down, and I thought, 
Everybody that's lived on this planet has seen that exact same star. Everybody's seen it. Everybody's watched it go down. And all those people that came before us, they're all dead and gone. It's, it's crazy when you think about it. We're here, we're now. Everything is alive and vibrant. You feel like you're going to live forever. But you're not. None of us are, are going to live forever. And it just continues on uh, until the Lord returns and, and there's a culmination of this thing. Life goes on. How much time do we have left? None of us ever know that. Lord, help us to make these days count. Let the days count that we have left. So my mind thinks that way more and more and more. A person can repent. A person can change their mind and heart. And this can have nothing to do or no regard to sin. Follow what I'm saying here. We know the entire connotation of, of biblical repentance. But in this context, I can change my mind and my heart. And this may not have a thing to do with God. may not have a thing to do with, with uh, sin. If I said to you, hey, let's go to the mall. And you say, no, I, I've repented. You're never going to hear anybody say that. It just simply means, no, I don't feel like going to the mall. I've changed my mind. I've repented. And you read that in Scripture quite often. God repents with something that he originally said I'm going to do. He changes his mind. I'm going to do this. So a change of mind. I'll give you a good example of this. Changing your mind. Forgive me, my, my mouth gets very dry. So at 58 years old, when I was little, one of my, the nicknames my dad had for me was, was Husky. <laughs> Husky. Now, I wouldn't say I was a fat little kid, but I was kind of chunky. And, you know, once junior high, high school, you know, I became, you know, somewhat muscular, and I wasn't fat, and I was in, I was in good shape. But like so many of us here can relate to, <laughs> as the time goes by, it becomes more and more difficult to keep that weight off. You know, when you're a kid, you watch these little kids, as soon as these doors are open tonight, they'll be bouncing down here, just, just moving, moving, moving. They're so alive. They're so intense. I just watch them, and it makes me tired. They skip everywhere they go. You know, they don't think about being in shape. They just are. They don't even have to worry about it. As you get older, you all know the story how that changes. I, I can look back at stages in my life where here's the period. Yeah, this is the period where I weighed 175. Okay? Here's this other period of years where I weighed 185. I can look back at pictures and know, oh, that's when I weighed 185. And to think I thought I was fat at 175, I wish I could have those days back. And then, sadly, I watched it creep up. Now it's 200. And then all of a sudden, 205. That 200 isn't too bad. You know, let me get back down to 200. I, I hate, I'm not even going to tell you the number of what I got up to with my weight here fairly recently. And... I got to tell you, I was miserable. I'm, I'm very serious. And I'm talking, speaking only for myself. I was miserable. If you don't go out and buy a new wardrobe, all your clothes are tight. You're hurting. I mean, you're never comfortable. Tying my shoes, I was breathing heavy. And you're looking at a guy who had a heart attack in 2015. That should make me change, shouldn't it? What, shouldn't that have an effect on me? You had a heart attack and you're just letting yourself go. You're getting heavier and heavier. I felt horrible. I felt miserable. And I'm not exaggerating. I really did. Cindy, would, Cindy on several occasions would say, she would hear me and she would say, why are you always going, 
Because I would find, my, I'd find myself, you know, not just tying my shoes, just walking around uncomfortable. And just, <sighs> I know it's horrible, isn't it? Hopefully you haven't found yourself going, <sighs> but I would notice that. And I remember one day I stopped and looked in the, in myself in the window outside. I was, and I was walking by and I thought, I know why I'm doing that all the time. I know why I'm always, I feel bad. I mean, happy on the inside and all. I mean, love the Lord and life is good and, and serving God. I don't mean that, but physically, this is just really bad. Then it affects you mentally. It's like, I've got to lose this weight. I, I, I looked at myself and thought, I know what's wrong. I need to lose this weight. I've lost it before. And of course, I remember what it felt like you know, when I was seven years old, when I was small. I remember what that's like. So very, just a couple of months ago, I got on the scales, and I'm not going to tell you what it read. The heaviest I've been in my life. I stepped off that scale, and I literally said to myself, Steve, you're killing yourself. You're killing yourself. You're eating you're not controlling yourself. You know, put a, put a pan of brownies in front of me. All of you that know me well, you, you know that. I love the chocolate, the sweets. That's my problem. That's my downfall. Well, Cindy and I, we got real serious one night. We had a big talk. and I, I said, I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this. I have to lose this weight. This is ridiculous. I'm miserable feeling. Uh, it's affecting every part of my being. I can't do this anymore. And from that moment on, it changed. And I've been eating totally different, no more sweets, just, just quit, cut it out. I'm not going to go into all that, and I'm not preaching at you about what you're supposed to eat. I'm just saying, I repented. I repented. Not of sin, you know, barring gluttony. Yeah, there's, there could be, could be gluttony. If you're gluttonous, that is a sin. But barring gluttony, you know, I repented. I changed my mind. It became real to me, and I said, no more. I will not live like this anymore. This is ridiculous. And I quit it. I stopped then and I was going this way. Now I'm going that way. I've lost a few pounds. Just these 20 pounds, I feel so much better. I mean, it makes such a difference. It makes such a difference. And I'm, I'm talking to myself, y'all. I'm not trying to preach at anybody regarding your weight. I'm just saying I was miserable. So what am I saying? I repented. It had nothing to do with God. Other, other than their sense, of course, like I said, if it's gluttonous or no self-control, yes, that becomes a spiritual thing. And sadly, many times, to be honest with you, it was. You know, I don't want just one Dove chocolate. Give me the whole bag. You know, that's horrible. That's wrong. But, but you get the point I'm making. I had a change of mind, a change of attitude regarding what was going on in my life. There are many people, you will find, and you have seen this, that are conscious, even convicted of their sin, convicted of their wrongdoing. To the point they recognize their sin. And they may go so far as to ask God to forgive them of their sin. And they might even stop committing the sin. And yet they may never change their mind about that sin. I want you to think about what I'm saying. They may never really come to a fullness of understanding of what this sin is and the fact that I get on this scale and this sin is killing me. Oh, and, I, and I, I feel bad about it. I'm conscious of it. God convicts me. And I go through the motions, so to speak, but never have that, that mind change, that heart change to where it means something from the inside out. Now, when we look in Scripture, we find that the heart and the mind, the mind are very, very, very difficult to separate. If anybody has ever studied that, man, it's extremely complex. 
so perfectly intertwined, that, that mind and what we call the heart, the seat of our emotions, our moral thinking, the decision-making, all, all, you know, the way we're so wonderfully made, how God has made us, the heart, the mind. And then, you, you know, Jesus' words, worship God, serve God, what, with all your heart, love God with all your heart, mind. He throws mind in the heart, mind, soul, and strength. So it's very, very complex. So some of this, when we talk about the heart and when we talk about the mind, somewhat interchangeable. In a lot of the, the, the New Testament writing, it is interchangeable, although sometimes very different, so to speak. But you can be conscious of your sin and think about it and know about it, but never change your thinking about it. How many of you have heard of the Golden State Killer? My family has. I, I have an interest. I have for many, many years. I'm not morbid. It's not a morbid interest. But in, in uh, serial killers. But the reason being and what got me interested in that is starting out is knowing what went wrong in these people's lives. What went wrong in these people's lives? And I developed a real interest. Uh, again, not a morbid interest. You know, it's fascinating. And then... And then thank God for our police officers and these detectives. I, they, they, it's sad. You, you'll see they'll sacrifice their lives. They'll lose their, their wives. They'll lose their homes, their kids, because they're working on this one ridiculously crazy case that consumes them because so many people have been killed or murdered by this person, and they are bent on catching them. The Golden State Killer, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail. If you want to ask me after church, you can but this is a great example of, of, of what I'm trying to convey here at the moment. So, the East Area Rapist, also known as the Golden State Killer, or the original Night Stalker, started, as far as we know, in 1973 and committed his first crimes. He started a series of burglaries and ransacking. This is all out in California. Uh, as many as they're for sure, by his M.O. and the way he did things, at least 120 burglaries. Uh, and and uh, ransacking. And then around 75, we know now that he killed the first individual, at least that we know of. He was attempting to abduct a teenage girl from her bedroom at gunpoint and pulled her out of the house. She began kicking and screaming. The father, who was a professor there in a local town, got up, went outside to try to save her. And this, this guy just, just point blank shoots him, kills him, kicks the girl in the head, and does leave, and he runs. That we know of, that's the first killing, for sure. Now, if you, if you know anything about DNA, and, and you hear about it certainly constantly, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, that part of our body that is unique to us and nobody else, and these scientists, man, they're some smart folks. I can't explain it completely. But they can so decipher and decode the sequencing in these cells, in this DNA, every human being is different. Every human being is different. So it's a complete, perfect chemical fingerprint of every human being on this planet. You know, to within, I guess, billions of individuals. I mean, the odds that two people could be alike. It's ridiculous. So... DNA, that process of being able to fingerprint that and know who this DNA belongs to, started in the, the early 80s. A genetics professor in England named Alec Jeffries used DNA to solve a crime 
that happened in England in July of 1986. A teenage girl was murdered. He was able, with what was going on scientifically, he finally figured out how we can fingerprint this, use this DNA with evidence left at the crime scene to find out if we can match this, if we could get blood samples of people and compare that DNA to what the sample is at the crime scene, we can find out who did this. So now, of course, and I'm sure you're aware, there's a, a worldwide database of DNA where they can quickly run through and see if these, any criminals, uh, criminal activity that goes on, if there is DNA evidence left, see if it matches anybody in this criminal DNA database. Well, that was in May of 1986. In the United States, the first case of DNA being used to solve a crime, to solve a rape, was in May of 1986. Well, this Golden State killer, he performed his last murder that we know of. He, he, 13 murders they have linked him to. 50, over 50 rapes they have linked him to. And this went on for decades. And in 1986, that we know of, the last murder, he bludgeoned a young girl, a teenage girl, to death in her bedroom after raping her. 1986. I think you're seeing the correlation here already that I'm trying to make. And abruptly, as far as law enforcement knows, he stopped. He stopped killing. Nothing else on record looked like anything he did. That second, the first case in the United States of a crime being solved with the DNA was in November of 1987. We do know now because they caught this guy in April of 2018. They finally caught him, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And they used DNA to do it. Although in the way they did it, this, this uh, like 23andMe, these, these uh, sites where you send in your, your DNA sample and they'll tell you what your heritage is. Well, these, these detectives began to think if we could get a DNA sample, somehow someone near to him might have put their DNA sample into this deal. Maybe we could get a close match and somehow narrow it down. That's a long story short. That's what they did over months and months and months. They kept referring back to these sites, these sites. They put in a fake name with, a, with a, this DNA sample of the criminal. Lo and behold, at some point, they finally got a match, a distant match. As it turns out, I believe it was a niece of his that sent her DNA in. So what they had to do was go backwards for this long tree, look at the DNA sequencing, and go, back, go down through this whole tree of all those stemming, you know, going back several generations, and, and narrow it down to anybody that would, could fit into this category. And they did it, and they caught him. Then they took his DNA sample off his car door handle. Sure enough, it was a match to these murders and these rapes that had happened years, 30, 40 years ago. Reading about him when I did, one of the things that, that was postulated was that, well, he quit killing. He could be dead. Uh, maybe he's in prison. He could never get a DNA they sample a match for anybody who was in prison. You know, if he quit killing, why did he quit killing? Well, one of the thoughts was maybe he was aware of this DNA stuff. Maybe he realized, wow, I could get caught. Maybe he was smart enough, and we know now he was in law enforcement for many, many years. In fact, we know that he was examining his own crimes early on. He was on, on part of the, the uh, detective doing the, the police work involving his own crimes. 
investigating his own crimes. What a setup, huh? Anyway, long story. This man, it appears, knowing all this, decided, I better stop what I'm doing. I'm going to get caught. We, they saw from his personality and the things that he did uh, and, and the, the way he, he acted. They, they know how he was. He was an evil man. And the things that happened after all of this, them not knowing he was any kind of a killer, but people didn't have very good things to say about him. But no doubt in his mind, he changed his way of thinking. Hmm, maybe I better not do this anymore. I may get caught. Did it have anything to do with the fact that I'm a new man? I'm a changed man. Not that God couldn't save him, but we know now that wasn't the, the situation. He quit for whatever reason. He changed his mind regarding doing these horrible, evil things. But certainly it had nothing to do with godliness or turning from my sin or having a heart change in the sense of sorry for what I've done, turning from what I am, going the other direction. You and I, Christians, believers, we've come to Christ. We have asked the Lord to forgive us. And, and we say, Lord, I want to live for you. I want to serve you. But as Christians, it's an ongoing thing to always have a reckoning with ourselves, an accounting with ourselves, and listen to this one, an appraisal of ourselves. And I'm talking about you and me. I mean, you, your own heart, your own life. I said last week, only you know what's in your mind. Only you know what's in your heart. Uh, and, and it's shocking. I'm sure, every, of course, everyone's experienced that. Uh, the evil that can come out of your heart and mind. Uh, everybody here, if you're going to be honest, you're going to admit that. In fact, and the Bible bears out the heart is so, so desperately wicked above all things. I mean, who can know it, the Bible says. It's a very, very, very evil thing. So we've got to look at ourselves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, For if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't have the need for anybody else to judge us. So what do we do as Christians? Rather than say, hey, somebody tell me, make me, force me, oh God, how, how am I in my heart? How am I in my mind? How am I in my thinking? I want to look at myself. I want to be what you want me to be, Lord. I want to be tender towards you. I want to always know that I'm thinking right, that my mind is right towards you, that my mind is right towards others. Romans chapter 8. You can turn there if you would like. Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 5. Very, very, very familiar scripture. For those, Romans 8 verse 5, For those who are living according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's those things which gratify what? This body, the flesh. But those who are living according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, that is, His will and he's, His purpose. Verse 6, now the mind of the flesh is death, and I'm reading from the Amplified, both now and forever, because why? It pursues sin. The mind of the flesh pursues sin. And what does that bring? What does that ultimately lead to? Death. But the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. That is, the spiritual well-being that comes from walking with God. Is that precious? The spiritual well-being that comes from walking with God, both now and forever. There's nothing like being at peace with God. 
There's nothing like that. There's no pleasure. There's no sin. There's no drug. There's no alcohol. There's nothing like that pleasure of knowing, the peace of knowing I'm right with God. And I'm right with Him, and I love Him. And consequently, I love every one of you. That's a wonderful, precious thing. The world cannot even begin to duplicate that. All the problems that we, we see going on in societies, ours and across the world, it's all because of sin. All because of sin. In any, any way, shape, form, or fashion. It's sin, whether it's in a cop. It's sin, whether it's in looters. It doesn't matter. It's all that mess is brought on by sin. If we would judge ourselves, a lot of that would be out of the picture. Verse 7, the mind of the flesh with its sinful pursuits is actively hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God's law since it cannot. Verse 8, and those who are in the flesh, that is living a life that caters to sinful appetites and impulses, very simply put, cannot Please God. You know, sometimes folks let the devil beat them over the head regarding things they've done, even as a Christian, regarding sins they've committed. And I'm not here saying have at it, sin, do what you want. But listen, I am not, you are not, if you belong to Christ, you love him, you're not a habitual sinner. Your aim is to not sin. My aim is to please God. And certainly we know we do make mistakes. But I remember as a young man, you know, I remember as a young man sitting in, in service one time and saying, saying to myself, I don't love the world. Telling myself, I don't love the things of God. I don't want to be a part of that mess. I am not like the world. I don't have a love for that stuff. I don't want that mess in my life. I don't want it to be a part of me. If we fall, if we sin, as John said, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. The sinner lives in habitual sin. It's what this old fleshly appetite does. The Christian, it is something that when it happens, you're extremely upset by it. Whether it's, <laughs> whether it's 10 seconds later or 5 minutes or God forbid an hour or God forbid I didn't talk to my wife last night before I went to bed. Better make it right this morning. We went to bed arguing. You know, I let that anger, I let the sun set on our wrath, something like that. That's a horrible thing. Just, just a few hours, period, like that. But, oh, let's be quick to repent, quick to change our minds if God puts his finger on something in our, in our lives. But we don't live a life that caters to the sinful appetites and impulses. That's what the mind of the flesh does. Psalm 51, verse 6, this is David speaking, and he says, Behold, very, very serious words. You, God, you desire truth. Where? In the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. He's writing these words after being confronted by Nathan the prophet. After finally turning and repenting of what he had done with Bathsheba, all the garbage that has happened in his life because of his sin. And he says this. He realizes now. I want you to think about where David's mind has been. We all know the initial, that, that, that lust that we talk about with Bathsheba. What a horrible, terrible thing that got him into this problem. But think of the deceit now and the lying, 
the concealment of all this mess, the distortion of the truth that was a part of his life for a long time now. All that's going on in his heart and his mind. Well, it's a, it's a terrible, that's a very, very sad thing. All that was going on inside of his mind. And now when he's finished with it, sadly, God has to send Nathan the prophet to him and point it out to him and say, you are the man who has sinned before God. Have you become this hard-hearted? You don't get it. You don't see it. Thankfully, he did see it. He did repent. And he penned those words. Oh, God, you desire truth. Where? In the inward parts. I'm trying to get us to look at in the inward parts. Don't have anything hidden in your heart. Don't have anything hidden in your mind. Don't make excuses for anything in your heart and mind. Well, it's just the way I am. You know, it's just, I just have a hot temper. You know, don't make excuses for anything in your life. God wants the reality of truth in the inward parts, the things that nobody else can see. We must be truthful on the inside. It doesn't matter what, what anyone knows it or not. When I was in high school... The ninth grade, all right, now I'm a Christian, of course. I love the Lord. In the ninth grade, I got in on a gambling scam. Yeah, you're going you're to like this story. So, and there's a very wonderful point to be mentioned here because I've never, ever forgotten this in my own heart and life. So I'm a little 14-year-old kid. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I get the innocence, so to speak, of it. I understand is what I'm about to tell you. So... As in all schools, you know, there's little, there's little schoolyard games, different things, and, and it runs the gamut of all, all types of things, and it, and it all comes back around. All your kids nowadays talking about the same stuff we did in the fifth grade back then. You know, the fads and the trends that happen and come and go. They go through that stage. Everybody's got a yo-yo at school. You know, everybody had the hot picks, toothpicks. Everybody brought those to school, and it goes on and on and on, all those little things. Well, the guys at that particular time of of uh, school, school year, it was just that one year, they got on this kick of flipping coins to win money from each other. So the way you did this was two, two people stand there, could be more, but generally it was two guys. And so you flip a coin, you put your coin down in your hand, and one person, you switch off, one person will call even or he'll call odd. You take your hand off, you look at the coins. If you called it right, you get that money. Okay, so... You know, they, and they're doing this with quarters and dimes and nickels, you know. But this is what they would do all the time. Well, I wasn't about to gamble. I know better than gambling. But I came up with a really good idea with one of these expert gamblers. And I came up with this myself. I got him to the side and I said, hey, man, I'll tell you what. Here's what we'll do. Tomorrow after lunch, when we get out there on the playground there, the, the area there, where we all hang out after lunch, I'll stand behind the other guy, and I'll just look and see what's, in, what's on his hand when he, when he lifts up his hand. And then you just watch my fingers. If I do this, it's even. If I do this, it's odd. And he was like, that is awesome. Let's try it. Man, we went weeks making money off of all of those guys. And... And I remember, uh, and, and I understand, I, I really do understand a certain degree of innocence there. I, I, it's it's schoolboys on a play, at playground. But I remember, this is the ninth grade. The summer after the ninth, grade, the ninth grade, I got really serious about my life with God. And I told you last week, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit that summer after I got out of the ninth grade. 
But as funny and as innocent as that may seem, yet within me, I remember thinking, man, that, that's, that's really bad that I'm, I'm doing something that secretive. And laugh about it on the inside, thinking, man, we're putting it over on these guys. And, and I remember thinking, if I'll do it with something that's small, what could this lead to? I literally came to grips with that. I understand that I don't know that it wasn't that big of a deal, but it, I, I realized, and I'll be honest with you, that's something I saw in my heart as I, as I began to grow older and grow in the Lord. God was just, I had something in me where I can put this over on someone. Nobody knows it. Uh, and you see it play itself out all the time. So the, the, the guy at the register gives me too much change back. Ha, you see, it's Christians. I put it over on him. They, Walmart ain't going to miss 10 bucks. You see what I'm saying? Truth in the inward parts. And then that's relatively small. It can grow and it can grow and grow. But God is saying, I don't want any deceit in you. I don't want anything like that in you. Yes, that may be small, but sadly, you will see people, you will see Christians make excuse for things in their life when it comes to deceit, trickery, sham actions. It's not truthful. It's not coming from a place of truth in their heart and in their minds. So that was the extent of my gambling career. But I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that it was very real in my life. I don't want to be like that, Lord. As funny and as cute as that may seem, I don't want to be like that. A lot of those poor guys went without their lunches because they didn't have their lunch money anymore. All right, 2 Corinthians, we won it all from them. 2 Corinthians, and we had it down too. We didn't win every time. You know, we, we'd, we'd do it every three or four times, and then we'd really, really win. I mean, nobody figured it out. They never did figure it out. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul here is describing himself and the other apostles. And evidently, you would, it would appear that Paul has been accused. We know he was often accused of things. It's sad for all his heart, the, the preciousness of his heart and his burden for God's people, his love for God and his burden for those people. He said, man, you're like a, I'm like a father and you're like my children. This is the intensity of my love and my desire for you. And he was always having to defend himself by these false, other false apostles and people trying to, to, to change what he really was. So we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul saying this to the Corinthians, Therefore, since we have this ministry, by that we, he's not saying you guys, he's saying myself and these other apostles, since we have this ministry, as we, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. It's tough. Things are bad. You know what Paul went through. He said, but we hang in there and we persevere. We don't lose heart. Verse 2, and I want you to look at this carefully. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame. Hidden things. Those things hidden within my heart. Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Boy, what about that in our times? You know, God's the judge. I know that. But you can watch these preachers. I mean, every month, they're going to have a new money fundraising scam. I don't mind calling it for what it is. They will take things completely out of context in Scripture and out of the Old Testament. They'll take these Old Testament Scriptures regarding the Old Testament fest festivals and times and seasons, 
and try to push that off on the New Testament body of Christ as an excuse for you to send on your money. It's the year of Jubilee. Right now, I watched it the other day. If you'll send in your money, you'll get a special Jubilee blessing. Sounds extreme. And they say those words. Send me your money during this time. Next month, you'll watch it. It'll be something else. Some little sharp, crafty, sly scam. It's exactly what it is. And Paul says, how sweet is this? How precious is this? He says, no. Those hidden things, we refuse. We renounce those type things. We're not going to walk in the craftiness of our own minds and deceitfulness like this. We're not going to handle the Word of God deceitfully. My goodness, have you seen that? You know, if I don't know something about the Word of God, I'm going to tell you, I don't really know. I don't, I'm not really sure. I'll read up. We'll, we'll read up and we'll, we'll see what, what some of the greatest minds in this world come up with. There's those things we don't know about the Word of God. That's just it. If we did, we'd be God. We will never fathom it all completely. But what I don't know, what I do know, I'm not going to handle it deceitfully. Can't do that. What does this show you about Paul's heart? How precious is this? Everything within him is saying it must be real. It must be real. There cannot be any of this fakery in my heart and in my mind. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Their minds are blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And he says, this is a horrible, terrible thing. These people that are being deceived, too, by this trickery and this deceit, these deceitful ministers, these false apostles, they need the truth. They need the truth. Their minds are blinded to begin with. If they're not fed the truth, if the truth of God is not made real to them, how will they ever become saved? How will they ever come, come to know God? Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We want to give this to you, he says. I can't have this fakery and, and, and deceit in me. I want to shine this light out of Christ, of what it's like to see him face to face. I want to shine that out to the lost, to you. And what we're doing is real. You notice the contrast here. Without mentioning these guys, the contrast between the real guys, between Paul and these real apostles, and these false teachers, these false apostles. And he had to deal with that continuously in his ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 24. Again, notice this contrast. Verse 17, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you, now he's talking to believers, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. The rest of the ungodly walk. Look at this, in the futility of their minds. The futility. What a, that's a really, really bleak picture, is it not? The futility, the ineffectiveness, the emptiness, the frivolousness, the hollowness of their minds. That is the state of the world. It's not intelligence. They may be the smartest folks in the world, but yet their minds are darkened. Because they do not know the truth. Their minds are futile. It's ineffective, empty, frivolous, hollow. Having their understanding, 
darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. In verse 19, who being past feeling, this is, this is very key, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all cleanness with greediness. Then he goes on with the contrast, but you know better than this. You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. This is what you've learned, and this is what you know, and it continues on. And he uses the analogy, simply put, of putting on clothes and taking off clothes. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. See how that works? And this is no in-depth study. But our minds, what we give ourselves to, the choosing of being deceitful on the inside, the choosing of being fake. Uh, it's, it, my mom was brilliant beyond words to tell me those simple little words, Stephen, whatever you do, be real. Just be real. Be real. She understood you must have a genuine, sincere, humble heart before God. You can never be fake with him. And he sees what's on the inside. And then let that saturate you, permeate you to where it comes from you. That you're real. Am I perfect? Are you perfect? No. But I want to be real. I want, to, I want the truth of what's on the inside to come forward. Why, as Paul said, so that it can be the face of Christ, as it were, shining in this world, in my face, in your face as a believer. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Verse 23, and look at this, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And we're all familiar with Romans chapter 12, but we won't read it with the, fame, the wonderful, precious scripture. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Verse 24, and that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And what I'm, you see what I'm, there's, there's a thousand ways you could take these verses. Isn't it wonderful though? But what I, you see what I'm trying to say is we must look at ourselves. There cannot be any deceit within our hearts. There can't be. If we're going to be effective for Jesus, there can't be any trickery, fakery, deceit in our hearts, our hearts, our minds. These people that Paul describes here have given themselves over to this these things, this way of thinking, this way of being, this way of acting, this way of doing, and it's affected everything about their being. But we are to be renewed in the spirit, the attitude of our minds. And it's not this, this silliness of, you know, positive thinking, repeating stuff. That's not it at all. And that, what, you, what you give yourself to, though, certainly matters. If you give yourself to the worldly thinking, if you, if you listen just to the world's way of doing things and all the garbage that's out there, it will begin to affect your thinking. It will begin to affect your mind. I, I, I look back, one, one of the things I think of this quite often, having known so many wonderful, wonderful people in my lifetime, precious Christians, just so many wonderful people, and I'll think about some of those folks, and some of them I haven't seen for 35 or 40 years. They've been gone, moved, died, you know. But, but the folks that I'm mainly referring to are those that I know are alive. 
And I'll think about certain people, wonder what they're doing, wonder where they're at, wonder how life is, wonder what's going on. But the one thing I can guarantee you about that person, they're living for God. Doesn't matter where they are, what they're going through, what's happening, I can tell you that person's living for God. They're not going to turn from walking with God. Their mind is made up. Nothing will turn them away from God. Nothing. Nothing. Oh, God, let others look at me like that. Let others look at me like that. Let others look at you like that. Let, let people see us like that. No matter where they're at, I bet they're living for God. James chapter 4, verse 8. James chapter 4, verse 8. More very, very familiar scripture. James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is interesting. Purify your hearts. He's using the word heart. Remember I told you how deeply intertwined the heart and the mind are? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If I said to you, what's in your mind? Every one of you could tell me. You know what, exactly what you're thinking at the moment. If I said, what's in your heart? You're going to have to sit there for a second. You follow what I mean? What's in my heart? Hey, you know, I know what's in my mind. It's those thoughts that are, but what's in my heart? If you're, if, you're, if you're driving down the road and you have a flat tire, and one man, one, one Christian man has a, has a flat tire, oh, I had a flat tire. He gets out. He fixes his tire. Glad I didn't have a wreck. Love the Lord. Singing a song. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. He hops in his car, fixes his car, puts that other spare tire on. He takes off and carries on. Another man has a flat tire. I can't believe this. This is, this is horrible. I can't believe this. Gets out. He's throwing the lug nuts. He's, hitting the t- you know, he's upset because he had a flat tire. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, you find out what's in your heart when these things happen. I know it's, it's hard, hard, kind of tough, isn't it? The mind and the heart. It's very hard to separate. But you find out when the heart, what, what's in the heart when these events and these actions, these things happen, and you see how you react. What a wonderful way to look at ourselves, is it not? But by, by how we react to certain things that carry on in our life. And, and uh, anybody that has a wife know how, knows how difficult that is. You know, she and I, we so, take a while for that one. She and I, after 39 years of marriage, we don't have a whole lot of domestic encounters. You know, you learn how to, to get your point across, even forcefully, without being hateful, screaming at each other and all that. And occasionally it may get a little bit more carried away, usually with misunderstandings or something like that. But it's, oh, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad if you get carried away. If, if you know, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want the possibility of speaking harsh to her. I don't want it to come up. I don't want it to come out of me. Why should it ever come out of me? It should not. I'm confessing it should not. And she'll tell you, I treat her, okay? Okay, but I don't want that to ever. Why would that ever come out of me? Because deep down, it's still in there. I, I've got, I, I should not re- react like I just reacted. And you can just multiply that to whatever the situation or circumstance is. 
Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Make up your mind. Say to yourself, especially for young people, I'm going to live for God no matter what. When Jesus was doing all the signs and the wonders, when he had started his official ministry, to the point of where one of these miracles is feeding 5,000 folks with a little boy's lunch. And you remember the story. All those folks said, man, we're getting free food. They started following Jesus. They showed back up in another place where he was at. And, and Christ knew their hearts. He knew what was going on. And he began to speak to, get to them. And some of the things he said were really, really hard for these Jewish folks to handle. When he finally gets down and he, he, he gets pretty serious and he says, I'm the bread from heaven. And he says, your forefathers ate the, the manna in the wilderness, but they all died. But if you, if you eat this bread, you'll never die. Man, they're, they're thinking that's pretty rough to handle. And you remember it carries on. Jesus finally gets it down to this. He says to Jewish people who are not to eat anything with the blood, much less another human. And Jesus says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Well, that, that threw him for a loop. Threw him for a complete loop. And of course, they knew he didn't mean his actual flesh and his actual body. But they, this was super serious for someone to say this. And the Bible says from that point on, many of his disciples, not the 12, but it uses the word disciples, left him. They quit following him. And you remember Jesus said to his disciples, he said to them, to Peter, you going to leave me also? And what did Peter say? Lord, where can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's, there's no choice. That is how our mind should be regarding our walk with God. There is no other way. There is no choice. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. My mind is made up. As general as this may sound, let us have a made-up mind to serve God as never before, to be what God wants us to be, to have that light within. My heart is pure. My mind is pure. That what comes out of me is godly. That what come out of, comes out of me affects others for Christ. Help us, Lord, to have a made-up mind. Praise God. Will you stand here with me tonight? You've been so very, very... Gracious and patient. Praise God. Bow your heads with me if you all would. Thank you, Jesus, for your precious word. Oh, God, help us to have a made-up mind. Help us to have a made-up mind. Lord, I'm going to serve you with all that is within me. There is no turning back. There's no going any other direction, Lord. It's you and you alone, God. Oh, God, help us, Lord. Everything within us to the deepest the deepest thought, the deepest recesses of our, our hearts, our minds, God, be completely submitted to you, Lord. Let there be no deceitfulness within us, God. Help, our, help, ourself, help us to be mindful of being real. Lord, that we're real. Everything that is in us is real, Lord. Help us, God. Help us, God. Help us, God. If there's anyone here, I, I just do this, period. If there was two people here, I'd do it. If there's anyone here and you say, hey, I don't know Jesus. I'm not living for the Lord. I want to give you an opportunity to meet him. Anybody here, if you say that is your position, you can raise your hand and we'll pray with you. <laughs> Praise God. All of us now thinking, no raise of hands here, but Lord, what, what, what is in my mind? What is in my heart? 
Maybe you're aware of it. Maybe God's put his finger on it. Maybe he's placed it, his finger on it, something in your life that you know he's not pleased with. What a, what a precious word of encouragement this is, though. He loves us. He gave himself for, it, for us, and he's encouraging us. Give me everything. Give me all. Let me have every part of your being. Let's just lift our hands here tonight, if you would, and just pray. Each one, each person, for yourself at this moment. Lord, help me. Help me, God. I'm inadequate. That's how I feel, God. I'm inadequate. I'm inadequate. I'm nothing without you, Lord. But I know I want to have a pure heart. I want to have a pure mind. Lord, I don't want anything within me that is deceitful, Lord, that is wicked. Oh, God, let the real permeate me, God. Let your spirit permeate my life. Lord, let what comes out of me be pure, Lord. Let the abundance of what's in my heart be right, God, when it comes out of me. Help us all, God. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. Lord, you see all those people that we're in contact with on a daily basis. Oh, God, help us to take those lives serious. Lord, what impact are we having upon those in our lives, whether it's family members, relatives, family members, friends, coworkers? Help us, God. Help us, God. Help us, God. Help us, Lord, to be more like you, Jesus. Have your way, have your way, have your way in our hearts, Lord. Help us, God. Help us. Help us, God. There, there, is, there is no other way. There's just there, nothing else in this world. People, all the songs about love, all the movies about love, you know, they're looking, they're searching, they're searching, and most of them never find it. You read constantly the celebrities. It's, it's virtually every day, the celebrities that are filing for divorce. They're looking. They're, they're, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter the fame, the fortune. Their lives are so chaotic, and, and that's a lot of the world. Help us to God to be that foundation and anchor. Oh, let, let them see Jesus in our lives. Let us have a made-up mind that, Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to be an example for you. Nothing is going to sway me. I, I'm going to live for you. So that if someone 50 years from now says, I wonder where that person's at. Well, I know one thing. They're living for God. Wherever they're at, they're still living for God. Amen? Help us, Lord, that that be our hearts.